our, one of our, um, I guess, last talks in this series, not the last talk by any means, but one of our last talks in this relationship series. And here's what we're going to do as we start out this morning. We are going to have, I want to have a leader or a leader, student, whoever, just one person at each table, pull out your cell phone real quick. And I want to have you um, pull up this little address on your message deal, tbcpoll at gmail.com. Just one person per table. And in a minute, so about two weeks ago, I had, is Lauren in here? Where's Lauren? She's over here. So like two weeks ago, she had her girl. She said, hey, what are your questions you have for this Q&A uh, discussion that we're going to do? And she texted me some really good questions. Um, but beyond the ones that she texted me, I have gotten exactly three questions over the course of this deal. And th- the first question I got was someone being kind of smart, and they said, hey, uh, why are you doing this all in one deal? Like, why can't you do the questions throughout the whole series? Because how are you going to answer if you get 10 questions per Sunday and 10 Sundays? That's 100 questions. And I I shot back this sarcastic response said, because we're in week six and you're the first question, that's how, right? So I don't know who that person was, but they had the word werewolf in their Gmail address or something like that. It's kind of creepy. Uh, But but if you guys can, uh, next... Two or three minutes, I want you to fire off questions to that person at your table, pull up the address, any questions you guys might want to answer at this, at this Q&A panel discussion, fire away, that person will text those to that email address right now, go, you got like two and a half minutes, go. All right, of course you can keep texting those throughout the morning, I don't mind, so keep the questions coming in, we're going to pick about the top 12 questions, and our panel discussion people are excited to, to, to hear what your questions are going to be. So um, throughout the series, I have occasionally used quotes from little kids on what they think about relationships, and my kids say some really funny things, uh, but these are not their quotes. These are, are random kids out there in the world somewhere. I guess these are real. I don't know if they're real or not, but they, they are because the internet said so. Um, but here's some answers to uh, some questions for, from some kids. So what question would you ask on a first date? This person says. I would ask, do you have a girlfriend? Are you ready for a relationship? Have you ever been in jail? When is the right time to kiss someone? When the teacher is distracted... Under the table, when your parents are asleep or not looking, under a car or under a blanket, I did it once. I don't know what age these kids are, but messed up, messed up. Here's another one. When is the right time to kiss someone? When your ex-girlfriend passes by. (laughs) These little kids are mean. All right, here. Who do you think is happier, someone married or someone single? Single, because then you get to keep dating. Just make sure the person isn't cheating on you with Jessica or Nicole. Bitter. So who's happier, someone married or someone single? Single, because you can get more women. It's quantity, not quality. There's no way little kids thought of this. There's no way. Who's happier, someone married or someone single? 
I think I'd be happier with someone who was single because if I was happier with someone who was married, then he'd be cheating on his wife. Logical. How do you know you've met the right person to marry? First, they have to be sweet, kind, and funny. Fun to be with, not ugly. And I don't want to be another notch on his belt. All right. So how do you know you've met the right person to marry? When you've been dating and it feels like you've been getting nowhere for about a year. And two more. How do you know it's the right person to marry? When they obey you like a dog. Okay. How do you know it's the right person to marry? Last one. When you can visualize them crying over your deathbed. Courtney, Courtney, I have to confess to you, that's how I knew. That's how I knew. I was like, closed my eyes. I was like, oh, yeah, I can picture that. I can picture that. And I knew she was the one. That's how I knew. Today's about dating. So today we're, we're calling today's uh, topic dating towards marriage. We talked about starting with the end in mind. And so today is, is applying all we've talked about so far. How do you apply it to a dating relationship in the here and the now or in the distant future? So I want to start with a question. If marriage is meant to make God known and to make us holy, that's the purpose of marriage, make God known, make us holy, then how should these truths impact our dating life? How do these truths impact our dating life? The Bible doesn't really address dating per se. If it did, it would just be weird. Because if you were to try to go to the Bible and find direct passages about dating or try to apply direct principles from the Bible to dating, it would just work itself out in some strange ways. You'd end up getting into like, you know, exchanging sheep and goats and weird stuff with the families. It just would not work at all. So we can't go to the Bible for these direct verses on the um, aspects of dating because people didn't date back then. They had arranged marriages. You guys want to go back to that? Yes? Up here on the front row, it said, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> let's do that. So um, the Bible doesn't address dating specifically, but this might sound crazy, but I believe God's initial intent, listen, God's initial intent was for us to be married at fairly early ages. Think about it. Why would God get your body to a place, we call it puberty, where you are ready to make babies, right? Sorry. And yet, then have you wait 15 years until you actually get married. Why would God do that? I don't think that, that was his initial plan. I think his initial plan was for people to get married at fairly early ages, not crazy early, but fairly early. But because of culture, that's been pushed back further and further. In fact, if you're a believer, um, you shouldn't get mad at God for making you wait 15 years for marriage beyond the, like when you're 15, like 26, 27, 28. Um, you really should get upset at the culture because the culture is what has changed that. It's not God that's done that. In fact, uh, you guys might not know this, but marriage laws. Do you know in Texas, the law on your own, of course, to get married is 18, but do you know that in Texas, 
legally, if your parents sign some papers, 16. Parental consent. I don't know. I think she wishes she hadn't said that. Yes. You were answering a question someone asked at the table, weren't you? You just said yes. Of course you can come over later today. Yes. That's what she meant to say. So the age could be 16 if there's paperwork and the parents are involved in Texas. Now listen, in Mississippi, Mississippi, the age is 21. Do you know why? Everyone was marrying their cousins, all right? So they had to put a stop. They're like, you know, 21, you're less likely, maybe, to do that. So um, Mississippi, it's 21. I'm trying to put a stop to all that nonsense over there in Mississippi. So there's this 10, 15-year gap from when you feel like you're ready for, rela- ready for marriage, but you're not, you can't really do that yet because um, you've got to pay bills. You've got to get an education. Um, way back in the day, if you could just, you know, build a mud hut and grow some fruits and vegetables, like you can, those are the skills you needed to be married and have a family, right? But today, you've got to make money. You graduate, you graduate college and you go buy a house and you already owe someone $200,000 starting out life. And so you've got to have some skills, some highly developed skills to make money in this culture and this is why marriage has been pushed back so far. Not because it's not because of God. God hasn't done that. But how you handle this gap of age 15 to 25 or whatever that gap's going to be for you, how you handle this gap is going to be crucial for your life. And this is where all kinds of doors are open for all kinds of sins. So we're going to look at six questions before you date someone to ask yourself. The first question is this. Is the relationship or the idea of one consuming your life? It is natural to desire relationships. I hope you never get the message from me or any of our leaders that, you know, how dare you be interested? Or how dare you have an attraction for someone? Or how dare you even think about it? We don't communicate that here because it's natural to desire one. God made you that way. But when a relationship occupies the place of God in your life, it becomes destructive. When a relationship becomes, when it supersedes God, it's idolatry. Exodus 22 says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then whenever we read that, uh, the, the first or second of the Ten Commandments, we, we, we think only of little statues, like little Buddha statues that someone else might bow down to. But that's not the only kind of idolatry. In fact, I would tell you that the most dangerous kind of idolatry is subtle idolatry. The kind where there's no statues involved. The kind where it's just you get caught up in something, and that's something where someone takes the place of God in your life and brings ultimate satisfaction and meaning and joy, at least in your mind, into your life. And this is the most dangerous kind of idolatry. So how do you know if that's you? Do you always have to be with someone or looking to be with someone? I've told you before, when I was in college, I, I dated a girl, and there was, she was someone, I quickly found out, she was someone that always had to have someone. I, I don't know what number I was, but I was probably way down the list. And 
she always had to have somebody. And I was just the guy for the, that 10-month time frame. In fact, I found out from other people, we broke up because she liked dating other people while she was also dating me. And so we broke off, we broke off the relationship. So if, are you someone that you're just addicted? Like you're just, you have to have someone. If you don't have someone, you're always looking for someone. Does it consume your life? Have you abandoned all your friends for a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Are you the person that used to have this great group of friends and then you got this person and now those people never see you anymore? You never talk, you never hang out. You're just consumed by this one person in your life. Or if you never have any friends, if you're someone that just goes through life and all you have is a boyfriend or a girlfriend, that's a problem. That's a big problem. Even if you're single, do you obsess over finding someone? Do you obsess about it and think about it? Does it consume you? Are you always looking for someone? We talk about the, the, the expression, this person needs to complete me. Are you looking for someone to fill this void inside of you that only God can fulfill? Do you use relationships to escape pain? One of the things I see very often, especially people at your age, people that have very difficult family situations are most likely to start dating early, and here's why. Because they don't feel like they have a family at home that is safe, that nourishes them. Mom and dad might be divorced or separated. There's just conflict among the kids between mom and dad. And they feel like home just feels like a dangerous place. And this kind of person is the most susceptible to becoming consumed with dating at an early age. And here's why. Because you don't feel like you've got a family. And you feel this God-given desire to, yeah, go make one. But you start going down the road of dating. You're looking for someone to fulfill what's not being fulfilled at home. And I've seen this happen many, many times where the most vulnerable in our midst are people who have very, very difficult home lives. And yet that person is the person that's going to carry the most baggage into a relationship and not be able to do it well and not have the right perspective because they have no support at home. And so this is why we'll get to more of this later, but this is why you have to be so careful as you think about this issue in your life. A relationship is meant to help you worship God, not for you to worship them or be worshipped by them. That's the point of relationship. It's to, it's to help you worship God better, to make him known, and to make you holy. So whenever it becomes about, I'm going to worship this person or have this person worship me, the whole thing just turns inward and it's, it, it's destructive. There are seasons of life when it's not healthy. Even for an adult to be seeking a dating relationship, I would tell you that if someone just came through a very treacherous time of life, it's not healthy. Even as a 25-year-old to be seeking after someone to date, if they've just gone through the gauntlet. And how much less so for someone who is a teenager and lacks the perspective that God might want them to have before they step into this kind of a thing. Number two, is the relationship keeping you from thinking clearly? It's not a surprise when people are drunk, they don't think very clearly. And for some people, being in love is like being drunk. It it really is. It's like a reality. 
it's like you are drunk on that person's love. There's a popular saying, follow your heart. If I feel it, it must be right. You hear it in our culture all the time. Follow your heart. Do whatever your heart tells you to do. But Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart's deceitful. Above all things and beyond cure, who can understand it? You can only follow your heart when your heart is following Jesus. You can only follow your heart when your heart's following after your Savior. And so for this person, their feelings are kind of like their authority. They, they say things like, you know, we can't help it. We're in love. Like, you can't argue with love. Right? And mom and dad try to step in. And, and this is when, if things start to get physical, the physical relationship does act like a drug. And that is scientific. It is scientific. The physical relationship acts like a drug, a real drug, and you become addicted to the fix, and it keeps you from thinking in the way that God wants you to think. In high school, this is what happened to me in high school. I was in this relationship. We started getting physical, and it was like I knew I should break up with this girl. I knew it. I knew God was telling me to. I was convicted. But I stayed because I was addicted. I thought, I really enjoy the physical part of the relationship. I was addicted to it. And you can't think clearly when you have an addiction like this. So for this person, if anyone questions the relationship, for this kind of couple, if anyone questions the relationship, they go into what I call Romeo and Juliet mode. Right? They, they see it's them against the world. It's our families are in conflict. And they see them, them on this island, and they, they feel like it's just us versus everybody. Everybody's out to destroy our perfect love fantasy. It's how they see it. And everyone else is the enemy. If people are speaking truth into their life, it's like, no, they're, they don't understand. Like, only you understand me. Only I understand you. No one else understands us. Like we do. And I will tell you, I've seen it a hundred times. This is the kind of person that causes me the most grief because every single person in their life is saying, no, you don't, you, you guys can't see clearly. Your vision's clouded. And yet they walk down this pathway of destruction. You know, it's really amazing. We, in our culture, people, people meet, they date, they get engaged. And then once they get engaged... They might go for premarital counseling, maybe. Even in the church. I don't recommend that you just go through premarital counseling. Because usually by then it's too late. I've had situations in my office where a couple comes in, and maybe I'm supposed to do the wedding. They sit on my couch, and I'm already seeing like 10, 15 red flags already. But guess what? They already have a date. There's a ring on the finger. The cake has been purchased. You think, are they going to listen to me? If I say to them, like, hey, you know, this is a problem, they're not going to listen to me. They'll go find someone else to marry them. This is why I recommend that people do pre-engagement counseling. You go find someone and have them speak into your life before you even put the ring on the finger before you date the person, 
while you're dating the person, and then as you move towards engagement, you bring other people in. Here's the issue. We invite people to a wedding, but invite them into your life before you make these decisions. Before you make the most important decision of your life, invite them into your life. And you've got to have this community surrounding you in this way, or else you're going to be someone who just can't, you make the decision, your vision's clouded, and your perspective is skewed. Third question, is this person a devoted follower of Christ? Are they a devoted follower of Christ? It's not enough to just say they're a Christian. Are you both following after Jesus? Are you both following Christ? This is, I think, most concerning to me for some of you. It's a big deal. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 say this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? That's Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? So what does it mean to be yoked together? This is any binding relationship. This could even be a business relationship. But if it's true of business, how much more is it true of marriage? So it absolutely applies to marriage. Belial is another name for Satan. So this passage is saying that what fellowship can light have with darkness? What does righteousness have to do with wickedness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, meaning Satan? You, you, you get the message he's trying to portray in this verse. So let's think of a scenario quickly. Let's say you walk into Starbucks and you see Jesus and Satan sitting there just having coffee, just hanging out, talking about sports, because that's what they probably would do, right? I'm sure Satan would like his coffee extra hot, but you have Satan and Jesus sitting there just hanging out, talking about sports, and let's just say you walk in, your first thought is going to be, wait, wait, what? What are y'all doing hanging out together? Why are you together? And you walk over and you're, you're inquisitive, right? You're inquisitive and brave. You're going to approach Jesus and Satan and ask them why in the world they are hanging out together and just having small talk, right? You're going to walk over and you're going to say, hey, what, what are you guys doing hanging out together? And Jesus will look at you and he will say, Exactly. And what are you doing with that guy? Or what are you doing with that girl? You understand, like, it would, it would freak us out. It'd make no sense to see light with darkness. And yet in our dating lives, we have no issue with it. It's not a big deal. That, that's just a, a regular way to do things. And I think this is especially tempting for the young ladies, and here's why. Some of the most bold young men in high school are some of the ungodly guys. You know why? Because they don't care. Boldness, they're not scared. They'll pursue someone. They don't care who's in the way. They have confidence. They have boldness. Some of the most bold 
and, and guys willing to pursue girls that I've seen in high school are some of the most ungodly guys. And girls that I thought or think were someone that, you know, had a heart for Jesus and a heart for God, and, and maybe they really did, that kind of girl gets caught up with this kind of guy because that guy was willing to pursue. He was bold in how he did it. He was bold. He pursued her. He, he initiated. And young, godly Christian men, that many of you are here, you're not thinking about that right now, which is a good thing. Like you're thinking about, man, I'm just trying to figure out life and trying to figure out how to be a godly man and how to walk with Christ. And I'm not thinking about pursuing some girl right now, which is probably a good place for you to be in. And so for you girls that are the godly girls, you're thinking to yourself, man, all these Christian guys, like they're just kind of they're kind of wimpy. Like they're kind of not really pursuing us girls. And you start to think to yourself, well, you know, this guy's pursuing me. This guy's coming after me. And your heart just gets caught up with this relationship. And this is how I've seen what we call the good girl, quotation marks, going after the bad guy because she just gets caught off guard, not realizing how volatile her heart is. And she gets scooped up. And it may not end well. And I've seen that. And I've seen it. Here's the other issue. When you date someone or try to pursue someone or in a relationship like this, if you're the girl and you consider yourself a believer and he is not a believer and he's pursuing you, you think to yourself, I can change him because my love is so transformative. I'm going to change him. And you're trying to be Jesus to him. You're trying to be his Savior, his Messiah. And you've got to remind yourself, only Jesus can be his Savior. Only Jesus can be his Messiah. You can't be his Messiah. You can't be Jesus in that way to him. And, you, and you'll convince yourself that, but I, I mean, if I reject him, I'm the only Christian he knows. I mean, if I reject him, like, he's going he's gonna to reject Jesus. That is a lie. That's what Satan wants you to believe. He wants you to think this way. You know, you don't want to reject him. Like, he's going he's gonna to reject Jesus if you do that. And listen, even if he were to change if, if, if your love is that trans, even if he were to change in the relationship, you don't know if it's real. He could be changing just to please you. There's no way for you to know if it's real change or not if you're in a relationship with him because all he could be doing is playing the game with you. There's no way to know if the change is legit or not. And so... Is this person a devoted follower of Christ? You see, it's not just about, you know, should I date an unbeliever or not? It's not just about that because you've got to ask the question, why are you so romantically drawn to unbelievers? It's a question about you too. It's a question about your own heart and your own mindset. That's a whole separate issue. So how do you know if someone's a devoted Christ follower? Here's how. Does a person have a, do they have a personal faith 
story. Like, this is when faith became real to me. This is when a walk with Christ became a reality for me. And this is when and how it happened in my life. Personal faith story. Second thing, a changed lifestyle. Has their lifestyle been changed by the gospel? Has it been changed by the gospel? And then thirdly, think about the core values here at TBC. Are they someone who's living, surrendered, living in community, and living, desiring to live on mission? I'm not saying someone has to be, um, especially at your age, like a, a, an incredibly just perfect Christian. But are they on the pathway? And is it their own pathway and not one they're doing just because they're with you? So are they a devoted follower of Christ? And then fourthly, are you taking it slow? Have you ever talked with someone one time and you just feel like, I just feel like I just know them so well? You don't, all right? You don't know them so well. You think you do, but you do not. This is the guy who says on the first date, you know, you're the kind of person I could marry. Or the girl who asks, so how many kids do you want? Like, you're just going way too fast here. You need to slow down the train. In fact, Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, I'm well aware this verse has been abused in relationships. You know, a guy pursues a girl, and the girl's like, I just think I need to guard my heart. You know, Proverbs 4.23, guard my heart, you know. I don't think so. So I don't want to get, like, out of context here. But listen, culture says follow your heart. Proverbs says guard your heart. Now, this verse was not written um, many years ago for just dating couples, okay? It wasn't written for that reason. But here's what it was written about. It's about wisdom. In Proverbs, the heart is the center of someone's life. This is the place from which we do all thinking, feeling, and choosing. We are to take wisdom into the heart, and then we're to guard wisdom in the heart. Do you see the application? We can't do that when we allow our heart to get so entangled so quickly. A writer named Lauren Winner, she wrote this quote. It's a long quote, but I want you to stay with it with me. She says, when we are in love with someone, we often appear to attend to our beloved when in fact we are doing the very opposite. We use them for our own glorification. We bask in their presence because we enjoy the image of ourselves that is reflected back. This is the opposite of Christian love. This is all about me, even idolizing them. Certainly a danger for the newly infatuated is all about me, though it pretends to be all about the other. It is all about me because it does not take the beloved seriously as a person created and redeemed by God, but rather imagines him to be perfect, heroic, sublime, and customized to meet my needs. Psychologists say that infatuation lasts about 18 months. I have no idea if that's accurate. It sounds like it might be. But you shouldn't be thinking or talking about the next step, marriage potentially, until you're out of this phase, until you have seen some of their issues, until you have seen and acknowledged some sin. 
there should not be any discussion towards marriage in a dating relationship. And some people ask, you know, how long should we date before engagement? I, I would just say how, however long it takes to get out of the infatuation stage. And also how long it takes to see someone's character. How long do you think it takes to see someone's character? I mean, I'm not going to give you a magic number on that, but listen, it probably ain't four months, right? I know some people. I have people in my family. They knew someone for four months, married them. I, I don't think you can see someone's character that quickly, especially when they're trying to impress you. It takes time to see those kinds of things. And it just takes time. And so, um, so how do you know you've passed through the infatuation stage? Have you been through and solved some conflicts? Have you been through a cycle of repenting and forgiving in the relationship? Have you shown you can make changes out of love for the other person? So really important. Um, are you taking it slow? Number five, have you set clear physical boundaries in the relationship? Several years ago, with one of our students here, um, I've not done a very good job at this lately. But in the past, what I have done, and I'd probably start doing it again, but if I know of a relationship in our group, I might go, go have lunch with the guy and just say, hey, man, I, I see you're dating someone, so let's just talk about it. Let's just see where you're at, you know. And there was a guy I had lunch with one day, and I said, I see you're dating this girl, and I said, so tell me about the relationship, and he explained some things. I said, well, tell me, what are your physical boundaries in the relationship? He looked at me funny, and he said, well, I mean, I guess, like, whatever she's okay with. And I said, um, well, let's talk about that. I said, so what if she's okay with sin? He's like, well, I don't know what you mean. He says, well, He's like, we're not having, we're not having sex. I said, well, I, okay, but let's talk about everything else. How are you guys doing? And they were struggling. And so I'm glad I asked the question. Because that question was never asked to me when I was in high school. And I wish it had been. Hebrews 13.4 says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. You can still dishonor the marriage bed when you're single. And if you're walking in sin, listen, if you're walking in sin in this area of your life, this verse says that God will judge. He doesn't play around. He doesn't play around with, he doesn't play games with us. He's not just pretending. But if you're walking and living in sin in this area of your relationship, your life, God will judge you if you don't repent. If you don't turn and surrender to him and repent in this area of life, God will judge. Now, if you've sinned sexually, like many have, there is forgiveness. There is the grace and the redemption of Jesus that can be applied to your life, and it's a beautiful thing, but the question is, are you still walking in it? There's a big difference between struggling and just and walking in sin. They look very different. Walking is a willful disobedience. Struggling is 
You're going and you're seeking help. You're on your face seeking God. You're seeking help in other people. There's a difference. So what happens is you and I buy into these sexual lies. One sexual lie we buy into is it's just physical. It's just physical, right? It's just no big deal. Culture says it's just physical. God says it's physical and spiritual. There's no separation with God. Anything that's physical is also spiritual in nature. And here's where culture is hypocritical. Because culture will say it's just physical whenever it's a male and female and it's just adults consenting, right? But the moment someone gets sexually abused or there's rape, culture will not say it's just physical. They acknowledge the depth of sexuality when someone is sexually abused. Because even culture, like non-believing culture, will acknowledge that if someone is violated in that way, that the person should go to jail. And the person who is the victim needs some serious help and needs to go through some counseling and needs to get help. And, and if it's just physical, well, why? Why does all that matter? Because culture is hypocritical in this area because it's not just physical. It's physical and it's spiritual. Another lie we buy into is everything except sex is okay. I've had some friends in the past that were, I thought, strong believers, and they, I was surprised to hear their views. I was like, wait, you think that's okay? Like, what you just said has the word sex in it. And I know it's not sex, but it has the word sex in it, and you think that's okay. And they're like, well, yeah, I mean, it's not, we're not going all the way. And I, I just was just shocked. Wait, how, how can a believer say that? Because when Paul uses the word um, sexual immorality in his passages, the word is the Greek word pornea. This is a catch-all term. This is a anything sexual kind of term is what Paul's talking about. He means anything sexual. So anything sexual in a relationship before you are married to someone is sin. Be very clear. There's always a question we get, right? Question, okay, well, how far is too far? How far is too far? And I understand the question. Let me just divide it up this way for you. Let's break this down. There is what all of us would see as affectionate contact. That might be holding hands, arm around the person. Maybe you kiss them on the forehead. I don't know. But there's affectionate contact, and then there is sexual contact contact. And we all know, I'm not going to get a chart out up here for you, but we know what sexual contact is. Any contact that is sexual in nature would be sexual contact, right? And there is some some gray area here, so I'll get very specific with you. Um, Matthew 5.28, listen, says don't even look at someone lustfully. Now, if Jesus said that about just looking at someone that you're not married to lustfully, then let's talk about 
how far is too far, right? Because when you, when, when you're making out with somebody, does that cause lust? It probably does, right? I would say that it does. You know, and, 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 and lying on a couch together, watching a movie till 1 o'clock in the morning, that just never leads to conversations about Jesus, does it? And so the question, how far is too far, you've got to ask you the question of yourself, what's my motive in asking the question? I would tell you that anything sexual contact would be sinful. Affectionate contact, we could talk about that. But at your age, the question becomes, those even affectionate interactions, when they're prolonged, they can become sexual very, very quickly. And I think you understand what I'm talking about. So you've got to ask yourself the question, what's my motive in asking the question, how far is too far? Why are you asking questions that get yourself up to the line and say, how, how close can I get to the fire without getting burned? Tell me, where's the line? When really you should be asking questions that um, I think deal with the question a different way. When you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2, when this is written, Paul says it's good for the young men to treat young women as sisters in all purity. So remember, until she is your wife, she is your what? She's your sister. And that should gross you out. That should gross you, I hope it grosses you out. You treat her in all purity. This means you should be asking questions like, how can I protect her? Instead of saying, how far is too far? Ask, how can I protect her? How can I protect us? How can I protect this relationship? And you might say, that's extreme. That's so extreme that you have to be extreme in this culture sometimes. You have to be. In fact, I heard a pastor once say, a good rule of thumb is no touching below the neck. Now, does that mean we can't hold hands? Only if she raises her arms above her neck. All right? Weirdos walking around like this. Why are you doing that? Don't ask me that question. All right? Strange people. Strange people. Number six, do they have character? Do they have character? Luke chapter 6, verse 43 says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. Someone's heart is seen in their actions and words. Some people say things like, you know, don't judge me. You can't judge my heart. Yes, we can. We can judge your heart. Or they might say, but he's a, he's a really good guy once you get to know him, like once you look past all the things that he says and does. Well, that's a character issue. I mean, if a good tree is known by its fruit, so I can judge your heart and I can look at your life and I can look at your actions and your words and say, there's some nasty stuff happening down inside of that heart. We, we can look at someone's heart. So how, does someone, how do you know if someone has character? Here's how. A surrendered life will be a sanctified life. Do we see the gospel at work in someone's life? 
Can they forgive when someone wrongs them? How you handle your sin and being sinned against is a character issue. That's a character issue. So I want to wrap this discussion up by just explaining something very quickly. And I've been doing a lot of reading in the book of Isaiah lately. And if you look at the Old Testament prophets, there are lots of examples of Israel, out of fear, aligning themselves with nations and countries that God does not want them aligning themselves with. And they see an enemy coming, maybe Assyria, maybe somebody else. They see this enemy, they're in fear, and they join with someone else to fend off the enemy, which is Assyria. And it always leads to their destruction. They do it over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Prophets warn them not to, and they do it time and time again. They see an enemy in fear. They join an unholy alliance. They wanted protection, but they got destruction. And it always brings them down as a nation. And this is what so many people do in relationships. They see an enemy. It's singleness. And out of fear, they get with an unbeliever to protect them from singleness. And it always leads to destruction. You didn't think that Isaiah would apply to your dating life, did you? It does. It does. And so as you guys begin to move forward in this part of your life, you've got to ask the question, will I be someone who operates out of fear or someone who operates in faith? If you operate out of fear in this area in your life, just like Israel, it will lead to your destruction. So the answer to that question will determine what your future looks like. You guys have some questions at your tables? Go ahead and discuss those questions as we wrap up.